I'm Joshua Kagey from The Christian Citizen, and this is episode 43 of Justice, Mercy, Faith. In this episode, Dr. Rachel Lawrence, acting pastor of Second Baptist Church in Suffield, Connecticut, and assistant director at the Center for Educational Policy at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, joins Christian Citizen editor Curtis Ramsey Lucas for a conversation about the sustainability of the adjunctifying of the pastoral role within the church due to financial constraints. Here now is Curtis Ramsey Lucas with Dr. Rachel Lawrence. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Rachel Lawrence to the podcast. Rachel is acting pastor of Second Baptist Church, Suffield, Connecticut, and assistant director at the Center for Education Policy at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She is a classical musician and a regular contributor to The Christian Citizen. Welcome to the program, Rachel. Thank you, Curtis. Thanks for inviting me today. So our focus today is a recent article you wrote for the Christian Citizen, but before we get to that, tell me a little bit about your ministry at Second Baptist. What's the church and community like? Second Baptist is a really, it's a really neat faith community. It's in Northern Connecticut in a rural community, Suffield. It is Second Baptist Church because it broke away from the original Baptist Church in Suffield, First Baptist Church, um, which was a tiny, tiny building out on a hill in some farmland. Um, They stopped being an official church in around 1930. They've been closed a long time and Second remained. Second was built in 1805. And um, it's been a real heartbeat of that community for a long time. Um, Suffield's known for a, an academy, a boarding school academy that I think does middle and high school students. Um, that was originally a Baptist seminary <laughs> that was started by Second Baptist Church. Um, so that they're, they're a long historic New England church and um, they really cherish their traditions. They in some ways are a bit more liturgical than some of the other Baptist churches I've been to, um, but they're, they're, a, they're a wonderful community. <laughs> so. As the COVID infection rates continue to come down and vaccinations rise, do you have a plan for returning to in-person worship and will that be a hybrid in-person and online experience? We, um, we're fully intending to continue our remote church as we, um, as we reopen. For one thing, like we were, we're recognizing that vaccination rates are, um, they're, they're not climbing particularly quickly. And while they're climbing most rapidly in the population who my congregation is, <laughs> largely over 60, um, it's, it's still not happening quickly enough, especially for the younger people in the congregation who, who come. Um, plus, we've had this kind of added bonus of that we have, we've really changed our definition of who our church community is because of the pandemic. We get viewers from Texas and West Virginia and um, Ohio some days, some days Michigan. Um, and I have people write in and interact for, on our website from all over the United States. Um, 
you know, they may not necessarily feel that they're members of this congregation, but that they've been getting something from our Sunday morning services. So we've wired our sanctuary so that we um, we can live stream services when we do go back. Um, we um, we have cameras set up. We have a system that will just automatically put things on YouTube. It might not be as well produced as what our deacons are doing right now, but um, but, but we're certainly planning on, on keeping both things going. Right now we're waiting for, um, currently, even though Connecticut has technically opened up and said that you can have 100% attendance at your church, Suffield itself is still an outbreak status. So we're waiting for our rate of to fall. It's currently at 25 new infections per day per 100,000 people. We're hoping that we can get it below 15 before we really reopen. So, and I'm hoping for a shot myself. <laughs> so. We're, we're in a similar boat, I must say. Yeah. Um, what is your biggest takeaway uh, from ministry during the pandemic? What, what will you carry over? What do you think needs to change? My biggest takeaway is, you know, I can't say it's a takeaway as much as it is a question, right? It's a question I'm going to continue to wrestle with. How much of it of our identity as a church is confined to a building, right? Um, What is it about the sanctuary that means so much to people when we know God is out in the world? (laughs) Um, When, you know, what, what can we keep from having had church without walls for 12 months to carry over into to making sure that our message continues to find its way out into the world? Um, I'm going to be wrestling with those questions for a long time yet. Um, you know, why did virtual church feel like something that was like a very important spiritual um, event for many and feel really disappointing to some? That's another thing that I just, I I will be unpacking that for a long time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, uh, the church has always transcended time and space, but uh, I think we felt that in a new way Mm -hmm. in this experience of online worship. And as you say, um, you have folks tuning in from all over the country. And I think that's been the experience for a lot of churches and and I guess one of the challenges going forward is how do you how do you build a community that is at once local, but also has these connections uh, that are pretty mm-hmm. far flung. Yeah, it's a, it, an important question, and I, I mean I, I think that we we will continue wrestling with this as we get. I mean, basically, let's face it: everybody who is my age and younger has been used to building community online. They're engaged in social media more than they are face-to-face in a lot of cases. Some people view that as a negative. Others view it as the reality of this is where life exists now, or it's one of the arenas in which life exists. So why can't church be there too? (laughs) Right? Yeah. So in your recent article, you write about the adjunctifying of the church and the parallel trends that you see in the church and academia. What does adjunctifying mean and how does it relate to what's happening in the in the church? Sure. Adjunctifying is a term that has been bantered about in higher education for 
probably about 10 years now. It is the process of breaking up, breaking off the teaching component of professorships and distributing it out to people who aren't relying on a professorship for their full-time job. So instead of a professor being hired to teach four courses a semester, um, they may hire four individual people to teach those same courses. And this generates a ton of savings for a university. They then can, are offering part-time work um, for somebody who is an adjunct who has a full-time job. A stipend of three or four thousand dollars to teach a class might seem like some nice pocket change. Um, and meanwhile, the university has saved a budget line of at least, at least in Massachusetts, at least seventy thousand dollars. Right? <laughs> Replaced it with about twelve thousand dollars. Um, one of the difficulties of this is, is that it divorces in the professorship, um, it divorces the research and um, advising components away from the teaching components. So you can have a teacher of a course that you might love and really connect to for that one course and never see them again in your entire academic career. <laughs> or that person who is an adjunct can be um, also in a position where they finished a PhD in a field, they're an expert, they really are passionate about sharing this with the next generation, but there isn't a job that exists for them to be able to do that full time. Um, so that's what adjunctifying is. And I mean, we see this trend all over the country. Um, universities kind of cutting out on full-time faculty, increasing their use of adjuncts and graduate students to teach. Um, and a lot of us see this as a troubling trend. Um, in this article, I'm, I'm comparing this idea to what's happening with part, the shift to part-time ministry, which is very heavily underway in the northeastern part of the United States and mainline line denominations. Um, I'm actually currently running a survey right now to try to dig deeper into who is who is, I was about to say adjuncting, <laughs> who is part-time and what other kinds of work are they doing and, and what does their salaries, like how does their making a living look between a couple of jobs? Um, so part-time ministry has the same kinds of challenges. If a church is being truthful about the hours required <laughs> of a part-time minister, um, it means that they're doing away with some of the core of the job. So we can think of the, the core of the job as being, like sometimes we say um, priest, pastor, and counselor, or priest, like some, some version of that, where, um, you know, you're not only concerned for the worship service and, and making sure that the worship service is spiritually enriching, but that you're also, um, you know, you're concerned for the well-being of the people and out into the community, um, interacting with people. When you make a person rely on another job to do this, something has to give in the big list of what it is a pastor does, right? Sure. <laughs> so the same way, the same way that an adjunct can't really advise students over a long run, a pastor who's only working part-time often doesn't have the time to make the connections that they normally would in a community. So. So you mentioned the, the survey. Um, what's some of the initial finding that you're 
getting from that response? Um, I'm hoping to write about this soon, actually. Sure. Um, not surprisingly, in the question I ask about what's one thing you would change about your job, the overwhelming response is part-time means part-time and pay only. Right. The hours are still, the, the church still expects me to be on call all the time. The church still needs me to do all of the activities of the regular pastor. The only thing is I'm getting paid a lower salary. Right. That's the most consistent thing so far. Um, the other finding that is popping up is that quite often it's health insurance that makes the difference. That um, I think out of the, I've only had 40 respondents so far. Um, maybe four have health insurance provided by their pastor pastoral job. Mm. Most of the others, their health insurance is picked up by their second job or by their spouse. Um, so I, um, I, I don't really find either of those trends surprising working as a part-time pastor myself. Um, those happen to parallel the exact arrangements I have <laughs> with my own church and other job. Right. So. Well, so these are obviously they're trends in academia, they're trends in the church, they're trends also, I think, within our economy more broadly. Um, and to the extent that bivocational or part-time ministry may be a model for the future, how can it be structured in such a way that the church is not participating in an employment practice which is economically unjust? I mean, paying a paying a lower wage but still expecting to be on call, for example, full-time. I think the most critical thing churches can do is examine their responsibility in helping clergy maintain their boundaries. Um, a lot of us who go into this line of work, like like teachers, like college professors, it's we're intrinsically motivated that it is it is the good of doing the work itself that keeps us going. I think social workers would also fall into nurses. Um, there are a lot of roles where the intrinsic motivation is a lot higher than any remuneration you'll ever get. So churches need to be mindful to not take advantage of that. Um, I know I, I talk to so many part-time clergy who are like, well, this is my call, right? I, I'm being called by God to serve this. Hopefully God will make a way. Um, hopefully the church will hear that that way needs to be made by God through them. <laughs> Right. Right. Um, I think that there's an opportunity to to examine the kind of education that leads to ministerial jobs. Um, I do not. I didn't follow a traditional educational path to the ministry, but those who did, those who who took out the student loans to get their MDiv to come out and do part time work. Um, need support from their congregation in finding work that is going to be both compatible with the ministry and provide the benefits that they can't. And given the space to do this, I mean, whether it's the congregation that fills that role or the association or the region, whatever level, we, we, we need to be thinking about how, 
how do we help people in piecing together a reasonable living? Um, I worry sometimes for the future of the clergy, especially because one of the other initial findings, at least out of the first 30 people, is that the part-time ministry is about 75 to 80% female. I can't say that broadly across the nation because the survey right now is located in New England and New York State. And um, I've been relying on social media to spread it. And so um, my social media connections look a lot like me, right? Sure. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, as a profession becomes feminized, like part-time ministry appears to be doing, at least initially, um, we often will then think that, or, you know, that organizations will think, well, we can let somebody else pick up the slack for this person's living, their spouse, their, um, the other job. I, I, I really think we've got to be mindful of not exploiting people. In this. Yeah. It's interesting when you mentioned the, the calling aspect of it, I mean, I've heard that, um, language even used, um, teachers will talk about, I'm called to teach. Um, and that almost becomes an excuse then for um, lack of equitable uh, remuneration for the work being done because, well, it's a calling, you know, um, and, and that's all bound up. And I think uh, within, within ministry and some very long kind of um, traditions around poverty of clergy um, and, uh, and not, really about what it takes to live in the world we live in today economically. So the article uh, has generated quite a response. Uh, you mentioned social media and uh, some interesting dialogue on social media. Tell me a little bit about the reaction that you've seen to it and the perspectives that have been shared by others. The reactions have been really interesting. Um, Eye-opening to me are the clergy who are really happy in this position. Mm. Right? There are some people for whom um, having a part-time church and a part-time secondary vocation um, is really life-fulfilling. Um, there are people for whom the part-time ministry is an, is an addition to being a stay-at-home parent. Um, I specifically hear mothers saying this more than fathers, <laughs> but um, so that's like it, it, it isn't all doom and gloom, right? Moving in, into part time ministry. Um, what I have seen on, on, on social media is this sense of um, I hadn't thought about it. Th like I see people saying things like I hadn't thought about it that way. I hadn't thought about the economic implications of of how we got here, or um, and like and I I think and I hope that is it has started some conversations among leaders in the denomination that um, moving towards like helping churches to create more equitable jobs. Um, I'm hearing rumblings of. When we have two smaller churches, could they share a pastor, make one full-time position out of two part-time positions? Um, I think that's positive, possibly positive. <laughs> it really, it, it, it depends on the person, um, how called to full-time ministry they might feel, 
what their um, educational indebtedness might be. Um, yeah. Do you see a, a need as well? Um, you know, you talked about the the traditional track into ministry of a master divinity. Do you see a need for change there? Um, I'm always kind of, uh, when I talk with folks who are not uh, familiar with that, they're always kind of surprised at what a lengthy degree it is. I mean, it, it grew out of being a bachelor's degree. It became a master of divinity. And most people think of a master's degree being 30 credit hours. But, you know, when I was in seminary, it was 90. I know it's shortened some now, but but even, even that, uh, which of course leads to indebtedness for students who go that route, do you see a need or possibility there for some rethinking of what a what an education looks like to get to a point in professional ministry? Um, for certain. I, I know that part of the reason the entry point changed from being a bachelor's degree into the MDiv was a hope for maturity, right? in the person so that you're not coming out of college at 21, 22 years old and suddenly needing to tend to the spiritual needs of those who are at the end of their days. Um, granted, ministers did that for a long time, but getting a few more years of maturity under your belt and so a few more years in the ivory tower to consider the big questions before you're asking them to your congregation um, is, is important. However, <laughs> these days, I mean, especially, I think it was 10 years ago, Gen X had been labeled as the most educated generation that had yet existed on planet Earth. Um, the millennials have just as much education. Who knows what our Zoomer kids are going to do? <laughs> but like, people have become more and more educated, and they're starting to come into the pastorate as second, third careers. They're, they're coming in their 30s. They're coming in the 40s. The need for, I mean, and even later, I've known people who've gone back to seminary at 70. Um, the need for that window of maturation isn't as essential as it was coming right out of undergraduate. Um, that's one That's one thing. Um, this I think we need to think about how we finance those degrees and, and, you know, who has provided scholarship support? How do we fund seminaries if we can't do it through tuition? You know, um, these are, these are big questions. Um, the other thing is, is like, how can the MDiv become a credential that's useful in other fields? Like if we were to pair an MDiv with an MED, that you get a teacher credential along with your MDiv so that you could work in the public schools. Um, that could really then expand your career options and make sure that you had a, a secondary career that had retirement benefits and insurance and you know three months off-ish in the summer. <laughs> um, I say ish because I've been a K-12 teacher, <laughs> not exactly the case. <laughs> um, the or like besides the MDiv MED ideas, like you could do a master's in counseling along with it. You could, it could be paired with a degree that could be useful in a in a lucrative field, right? Right. 
the, the ministry has never been considered a lucrative field, despite what the what the mega church pastors seem to make of it. So right, sure, it almost be a, a recognition. I mean, I think back. You know, we we talk about. Um, Biblically, you know, Paul was a tent maker, right? So he had a sideline uh, that supported his ministry. It's almost like an educational codification of that recognition of um, this may be the path. And, and so we prepare people for a dual track right along the way. Mm-hmm. A compatible dual track, I think. Right. Um, one of the things I hear from people, although it's not the majority in the survey, is that um, sometimes your job just really isn't compatible with a ministry. Um, one, one person is a delivery driver. Um, they're benefited as a delivery driver. They, they enjoy the time on the road. Um, but it's not like you're, it, it's not speaking to that sense of call alongside ministry. Right. Yeah. You also wrote a chapter in the book, In This Together, Ministry in Times of Crisis, which was published late last year by Judson Press. And in that chapter, you noted a tempered optimism regarding the future of the church with emerging signs of purpose and mission, tenacity and creativity in response to uh, COVID-19 and the other crises that we have been living through. Do you maintain that tempered optimism about the future? Um, I do. Um, I part of it is I, I'm still in touch with enough um, elementary and school aged kid, high school aged kids, and I see this um, yearning for justice in this generation that's coming up. That um, I I think is a real opportunity for the church. Um, I think. You know, when when I talk to high school students, whether they're whether they're in my congregation or not, I hear a belief in something, even if they can't name it yet. And I think if our if our church can give them something meaningful to do that helps them um, helps them deepen that their call into to to making a more just world, that they that they can reach out and touch that um, we won't have that worry of who's going to be the next leader of the church. <laughs> um, you know, can we step up and do it? I, I think places are to some degree. Um, then we need to we need to keep ourselves encouraged that that we can keep the faith <laughs> through it. <laughs> Amen. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to speak with you. The article is Adjunctifying the Church, How Sustainable Is This? You can find it online at christiancitizen.us. While there, sign up for our weekly newsletter for access to all that we're currently publishing and links to related news and opinion elsewhere. At The Christian Citizen, we're passionate about justice, mercy, and faith. We produce award-winning content that is provocative, timely, and relevant. What started 25 years ago as a print-only publication is now a digital-first, multi-platform publication. We've added an award-winning weekly e-newsletter, this podcast, and a growing presence on social media. Now, for the first time, we're adding a member support program, Christian Citizen Ambassadors. Learn more about how you can support our work at christiancitizen.us slash members.
Thank you to this week's guest, Dr. Rachel Lawrence. Our theme music is Eye of the Beholder by Fabian Tell. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Kagi. Stories are copy edited by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison. The Christian Citizen editorial board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagray, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, and the Reverend Cassandra Karkov Williams. And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Payton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMichael, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about the Christian Citizen, visit our website, ChristianCitizen.us. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thanks for listening.